0: let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others. So if you're trekking with us through the book of Philippians whether you're listening online or here today especially if you're if you're visiting with us I want to just kind of give you some some insight as to where we've been where we are. So we haven't been in the book of Philippians very long but I would say probably the majority of scholars would say that the book of Philippians is a book of joy. There's others that say you find other threads woven through the fabric of the book, which I would agree with, but I think the main dominating theme is joy. So what we're trying to do is expose the riches of joy in the depths of Christ, and that's what's fueling Paul as he's writing this letter is a deeply rooted joy in Christ a joy that transcends his current situation, a joy that transcends his circumstances because that's what true joy does. True joy transcends hardship. It transcends persecution. It transcends death. It transcends, it transcends cancer. It transcends all these things. It doesn't necessarily mean you wear a smile on your face. It doesn't necessarily mean you feel like skipping down the road and hugging everybody you run into, but it does mean that there's something there that gives you hope that is born out of something not of yourself, namely the gospel. And so this is from the place that Paul's writing. This is his disposition from which he writes. So today I have two objectives for you. First is to see that seeking the interest of others over your own interest requires a modicum of humility. Humility. To see also, objective number two, is to see the relationship between humility and considering others more significant than yourself. So first of all, to understand that in order to get to this goal that Paul is setting before us, in order to get there, which is in keeping with walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, living life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now this is just outside of the context of hardship, outside of the context of persecution. Two weeks ago when I taught, we dealt with what it was to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel in the context of hardship. And now Paul moves out of this, but it's a continuation of what it looks like to be a Christ follower. It's a continuation of what it looks like to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. So my objective again today is for us to see and try to understand this relationship, the correlation between humility and seeking the interest of others. And it's interesting, in order to get there, Paul kind of presents it in stages. And it makes it, I think, a little more palatable for us as we're seeing how these things unfold. I mean, I like instruction manuals. You know, uh, there are times where I go into typical guy mode where I'm like, I don't need instructions, but that usually ends up badly for me and badly for my marriage. So I like instruction books. I'm like, okay, if I go wrong here, I still get blamed for not interpreting it right or not reading it right, and that's okay. At least I've I've made a, a, a conscious effort to follow instructions. Um, but I like those because it helps to somewhat ensure that maybe I'm less likely to veer away from where I'm supposed to go. And I think Paul's doing that for us here. Again, he's saying, here's the goal. The goal is ultimately to imitate Christ. And Christ gave us the example of what we are to imitate as he humbled himself and as he put your best interest to action as he says, they need salvation, they need life, they need rescue from the domain of darkness, they need hope, they need security, they need these things. And in order for that to happen, he had to humble himself, he had to empty himself. We'll get into all that fun theological stuff next week, so stay tuned, it will be somewhat theological. So for those of you that are in that kind of stuff, great, if you're not into that kind of stuff, you need to be, because... Jeremiah said, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. But let he who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. So, we should know God, we should love theology. I'm not saying go around and be God's gift to debate, God's gift to argumentation, God's gift to apologetics. God gifts certain people in certain ways to do those things and he gives them those things as a platform for the advancement of the gospel and the establishment or it's established the expansion of his kingdom. And that may not be you, but you are called to be a theologian of sorts and that's just to know and understand God. So Paul starts out by giving this prohibition before he says, hey, just love others. Before he says, just, just consider them more significant or, or you know, put their interest above your own. He starts with a prohibition. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition and do nothing from conceit. Now, I don't have to labor the point that we're all prone to selfishness, to self-centeredness, to smugness, to all of these things. We're, we're prone to that. You know, we're prone to that. And this passage, it presupposes that. And it's not all wrong. It's not all wrong to go into self-preservation mode. Because he says, he says, look look not only to your own interest. So this text presupposes that you'll be looking after your own interest, and it suggests that it's not wrong to do so. But don't just look after your own interest, but also look after the interest of others. But before you get there, he gives this prohibition of, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition and do nothing from conceit. To do something from selfish ambition is to do something in order to get something in return. When Paul addresses in Philippians 1, the source of his joy, when he says, look, as long as Christ is preached, I will rejoice. When he says, look, there will be some who will preach Christ from selfish ambition, from impure motives, he says, so what? If the gospel's getting out, I will rejoice. And why? He said, because the message is more powerful than the man, right? Right? So his hope is in the message, his joy is in the gospel, but these are the type of people he's addressing. He's saying, see what they do? It's selfish ambition. They want notoriety, they want recognition because either they herald themselves or consider themselves or fancy themselves theologians or great orators slash communicators and they want the attention. He says, so what? As long as Christ is preached, God will deal with their motives. He weighs the motives as a matter of fact. The uh, the Psalms and I believe and the Proverbs say. So they're not going to slide under the radar with their impure motives or with their selfish ambition. Paul is saying, "Don't be like that. He's like your your goal is to put others here, but it's not easy to do because Paul knows we're working against the natural default tendency, and that is to put ourselves at a level higher than everybody else." It's easy if you just look at your life to see how you do that. Just the other day, my wife comes in and uh, some of our friends are out of town and she says, uh, and we're taking care of their, we're taking care of their, their dog and I just didn't want to go over there. I just gotten to, to, to my coffee and just things don't happen until I have my coffee. So I'm sitting down, I've got my Bible because I'm spiritual and I'm drinking my coffee and my wife comes in and I know she doesn't want to go feed this dog. I mean, it's not hard, it's not taxing on us to do it. But it is a little bit of a pain in the posterior region because it's having to get up out of my chair. It's having to put my coffee down. I'm gonna come back to cold coffee. What kind of Christian thing is that, right? So, so I said, you know, she comes in there and I'm reading this, you know, and, and, and I just, I've just read, again, in the Lord's work, I've just read, consider the interest of others. Count others more significant than this yourself. And She sits down, and she goes, would you go feed their dog? And I'm like, my default mode was, heck no, I won't go. I'm not gonna go feed the dog. You know, you agreed to do it, you take care of it. But that's not what I said, right? Because Jesus was listening. And he said, consider the interests of others more significant than yourself. Now, is the meaning of this text much broader than that? Absolutely. But in that moment, in that moment, I have to be careful what I say about my wife because my mother in law is in the audience, okay? So just, just realize that. So close your ears, Mimi. So, so I said, you know what? Yes, I will do it. So I'm battling that. And then another scripture pops in my brain, do everything without grumbling or complaining. I'm like, it you know, I'm, I'm really fighting this. I'm like, okay, I will go. I will consider your interests more, more than my own because my interest is to stay in my chair. My interest is to not go outside where it's getting hot. I don't want to do those things. I don't want to go and watch this dog who takes forever to use the bathroom. It's like, oh, I'm just watching, you know. So I go out there in my pajamas because I'm not about to get dressed up for a dog. And I wait 17 hours for the dog to do his business. And then I come back home to cold coffee and... Uh, that was that was my morning. So, and I can't pat myself on the back because there again we enter into selfish ambition. Hey, look what I did, Lord! Oh, I've got this crown. I'm ready to lay at your feet, and the Lord reminds me, well, you're polishing it because you plan on wearing it, not giving it to me. And that's kind of what happened to me during that uh, during that morning. That's the idea with selfish ambition. That is a default mode of all of us. We're all guilty of those things, but he doesn't just say selfish ambition. He says, if you wanna to get to this place where you can consider others more significant than yourself and where you can put others' interest above your own, he said, you have to not just do things without selfishness, but also without conceit or without arrogance, self-importance, smugness, or superiority. If you think about arrogance in light of the gospel, you have to think about the absurdity of our own arrogance. How (laughs) foolish is it for us to think more of ourselves when we have nothing to do with any goodness that's in us at all? So the idea of arrogance is so incredibly offensive to God and one of the reasons he addresses this issue in, in in his scriptures is because it is such an offense to the gospel and to the atonement of Christ who purchased you, who gave you his goodness, his righteousness, who controls, dictates, who governs, who sovereignly superintends every thought that you have? I'm not saying he causes you to think bad thoughts, but he's making the synapses and the neurons and the prefrontal cortex and the, all of the things that are happening in your brain to make things happen right. I watched some doctor shows the other day, so I've remembered some terms. I can impress you with more if you'd like. But all of these things happen, and God's directing and controlling all of these things. Not that man is without some kind of conscious decision or with, that man is without some kind of uh, uh, responsibility. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, but I am absolutely suggesting that God is controlling all things, yet without sin. So he says, don't be conceited. It's absurd. Doing something with conceit doesn't suggest that you have something to offer. I'm not saying that if you feel like God has gifted you with something to offer for the edification of the body, I'm not saying that's conceit because there are those who will take this text and say, well, I think God has given me the gift to, to teach, but I dare not say that I can teach because that would be arrogant. No, that's not what it's saying. Would that be conceit, conceited of me to say, I think God has gifted me in music, so I want to present myself and say, I, I'm willing to, to, to serve the body in this way? No, that's not what it's saying. Listen, this is not saying or not suggesting that you have something to offer. And you're, it, it is suggesting that you, in and of yourself, excluding any outside agent, consider yourself to have something to offer. See, there's a difference. One one recognizes that God has done this in me and God intends me to use this as a platform for his glory, for kingdom, uh, for for gospel advancement, for kingdom expansion. And one says, hey, (laughs) I've really worked hard. I've picked myself up from my bootstraps. I fought this. I did this. I secured this. I earned this. And therefore, I'm ready to use it. Just plug me in. No, that's conceit. And that's what he warns against he says if you want to really love the body well you must first first eradicate selfish ambition and conceit in your life cuz it is absurd listen we all have gifts we all have different proclivities and propensities acumen's different abilities right i'm not going to i'm not going to go to jonathan for medical advice i love you brother but i'm not you know um, I'm gonna go to Jonathan if I want advice on, uh, on, on uh, things about concealed weapons permits or bodybuilding or something like that. I'm gonna go to Jonathan and I'm gonna talk to Jonathan, among many other things, because Jonathan has a skill set that I don't have. I'm gonna go to Joey for certain things, like, like uh, uh, you'd think I'm gonna make fun of him, but I'm not. I'm not. I see what you're thinking. I'm gonna go to Joey... You know, for if I if I have to have uh, what you know, math is what I was thinking. I'm you know it may come as a surprise to you, but I'm not that great in math. And Joey has helped me out in some of those areas before because he thinks that way. He's good with numbers. I'm going to go to him. That's not my field. That's not my giftings. It's a part of Joey's giftings. He has other giftings. You know, so I'm going to go to Sarah or I'm going to go to Leslie for medical advice. I'm going to go to Jake for computer type stuff, IT type stuff. I'm going to go to Josh Kaufman or I'm going to go to Travis when it comes to automotives or mechanics. You know, I'm going to go to different people for different things because God has gifted you differently. But it doesn't mean that you're conceited, but it absolutely means that he's gifted you. Whether or not that is to stand here where I stand it is most assuredly for the same end result, and that is for the advancement of the gospel and the expansion of his kingdom. People get conceited for all kinds of reasons. They're really smart, they're athletic, they're pretty, or me, they're like me, they're handsome, they're they're a good communicator, etc. There's a lot of reasons that people might get conceited. And here's the problem with that. Here's one of the one of the major issues that Paul gives the prohibition is because conceit is bad because instead of using our gifts for gospel advancement and kingdom establishment, we tend to use them for personal advancement and for the establishment of our own kingdom. We're trying to build ourselves up and want others to rally around us and say, look what you've done. They tried to do that with Paul and Paul uh, Paul and Barabbas, uh, Paul and Barnabas when they go into the city of Lystra in Acts chapter 14 and they see the man who is lame and they, through the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the man's belief, Paul was given the gift of healing. And he tells the man to get up, to walk. The man gets up and walk, and then people rally around him and start chanting, Zeus and Hermes, they throw this party, and he's quick to say, no, no, I have nothing to do with this, but this is the Lord God who has caused this miracle to take place. That's a gifting that he was giving, that he was given, that he performed, that he executed without selfish selfish ambition and without conceit. And so there's a difference. There's another problem with conceit, and it's this. It dismisses the fact that, that all things are created, governed, and sustained by God. It dismisses that. It forgets the fact that whatever I bring to the table, I only bring to the table because of God's superintending in my life. I have friends that have super fast cognitive responses. My wife is one of them. You know, you can't be in the medical field and not have a fast cognitive response, and it frustrates me sometimes because I can't think as quickly as she can. I have a good buddy, his name is Jacob, whom you've met before, Uh, most of you have. He's been here uh, some time ago. And Jacob, for those of you that do know him well, is really, really quick. His mind just works that way and I've done, I did master's work with him, I did doctoral work with him and I hated every moment I sat by him because he's so sharp, because he can just rattle off things all the time you know, he reads something and remembers it. He sees something and remembers it. He hears something and he remembers it. And he regurgitates this stuff. And he doesn't just regurgitate stuff that is, is, is like a, an image in his brain. He processes it. He reasons through it. And then when he comes out with whatever he's processed, it's cogent. It makes sense. It's thoughtful. And it infuriates me. But God didn't make me that way. And Jacob can't brag on his own cognitive abilities. Why? Because God made him that way. God gifted him that way for the explicit purpose of the advancement of the gospel. That is the goal of the follower of Christ. And over that, I would say the glory of God. That's the big blanket statement, the glory of God. (sighs) What conceit does, it denies a few things and it dismisses. It dismisses that Proverbs teaches that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It dismisses that a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? It dismisses that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast. And where it lands is the Lord's decision. Let me put it in practical terms. You can be as healthy as you can possibly be, and you can read about how to fight off cancer the best that you can. What happens when you get cancer? Although you've fought and you've done everything in your power that modern science says to do in order to avoid a diagnosis of cancer, and you end up with it anyway. The person that's never smoked but is riddled with lung cancer, how do you explain that to him? Because though the lot is cast, the Lord, it's every decision belongs to the Lord. It's what comes to pass. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean do not live with wisdom. It doesn't mean don't heed the warnings uh, of what the Bible says when it when it's concerning your spiritual health or your physical health or your mental health. It doesn't mean ignore those things. But at the end of the day, working in tandem with choices you make directions that you go, your decisions, all that, God sovereignly superintends over all these things. Listen to Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. This text is not exclusive to salvation. Because upon reading it, you would say, well, the, the, the immediate context is salvation. This text presupposes that God is working All things, everything, the birth of your unborn child, everything is working according to the counsel of the will of God. So when you apply that to the idea of doing things with selfish ambition and doing things with conceit, it clashes in a major way because at the end of the day, whatever you bring to the table is what God gave you so that you could bring for his glory and for his kingdom. So there's no room in the kingdom of God for self-interest because the kingdom of God is about Christ. It couldn't be less about anything else. Christ is the hero, he's the center of the universe and not you and not me. So if we can, through grace, if we can eliminate our natural tendency towards self-centeredness and instead apply humility, we can move towards successfully seeking the interest of others. And this is the transition that Paul makes. Okay, so he says, hey, here's the prohibition, don't do this. You know, that, that, that selfish ambition, eradicate it. Conceit, get rid of it. Have a proper understanding of what these things are in relationship to the gospel. He says, and once you can do that, then you need to take on the disposition of humility. And we could talk about humility for a long time because we could all use a bit of it, especially myself. But for time's sake, we won't spend just too much time on it so here's the disposition Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. There's a story of a guy who goes up to preach one time, and he's excited to do so. Probably, mean, I mean, I don't know if the story is true. I've heard this story uh, from a couple of times, uh, from a couple of sources. But whether it's true or not, the, 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 the teaching, the moral still rings true. So this guy goes up, and it was told to me that it was a true story so whatever this guy is getting ready to preach he's pretty excited he thinks he's kind of the cat's pajamas when it comes to preaching so he stands up there well he goes up stage and he's just he's got this or of confidence among him uh, you know amongst him he's he's feeling good he's all right i'm going to i'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail this thing i've studied i've prepared i've practiced this thing i'm good i've got good one liners in here you know i've got some some comic relief going on to keep their attention man nobody's going to sleep it's going to be a great 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 time so he gets up there and very arrogantly he just presents things and then ends up just crashing and burning I mean, he can't get through stuff. He can't articulate his thought and I know exactly how this guy feels, believe me. It's awful, cold sweats. You're feeling awful. It's like I'm gonna go throw up or somebody shoot me. Bad things are happening because you just wanna get done and this is what's happening to this guy and when he got done, not a moment too soon for him, he came down broken, completely humiliated and the guy sitting next to him was an old pastor. He said, son, he said, son, if you would have gone up there the way you came down, you would have come down the way that you went up. In other words, he said, if you would have went up there with humility, with grace, with poise, knowing that you offer nothing to these people, but it's Christ, it's an outside agent that offers everything, then you would come down with confidence in glorifying Jesus, in your efforts to give men what they most need, and that's the word of God. Humility is the vehicle that drives our interests away our interest in ourselves away. I'm sorry, humility is the vehicle that drives our interest away from ourselves and towards others. It's interesting because Paul uses the humility of Christ as the example for our humility. We'll get into this next week, but just he's about to go into this. He's setting it up. I mean, Paul's a brilliant orator. He's very strategic, and ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that's really strategic, right? And Paul's about to write and say, listen, have this mind in yourself. You be humble. Don't be selfish. Don't be conceited, but be humble, considering others more significant than yourself. Have this mind, which was in Christ Jesus who humbled himself, putting on the form of becoming a man, putting on the becoming a slave or becoming a servant. Jesus came and he emptied himself, more into that later, but he emptied himself. He left glory, emptied himself, I would say of the exercise, not totally, but the exercise of his divine attributes. Didn't empty himself of his deity, but he emptied himself. The ultimate act of humility. He who had nothing in the world to be humble about humbled himself as the example for us that we might humble ourselves in order to put others' interests above our own. This is fascinating because Jesus had zero reason to be humble, I mean think about it, he never sinned. He's eternal, he's eternally perfect. He's perfectly just, perfectly gracious, perfectly loving. These are things we can't identify with. He responds appropriately and perfectly in all situations. There's no lag time between seeing a problem and him providing a solution. He doesn't have to, it's not like he, he's, he, they don't think of him as a problem solver like us. We have to think through and rationalize and analyze. He immediately knows the best option for the best possible outcome. You and I are not like Christ, are we? We have every reason to be humble. And I'll give you some examples. I've heard some of you sing. For some of you sing, I've seen some of you take a stab at athleticism. I happen to know that there are some of you that may or may not know the difference between a hammer and a nail. Maybe someone in here has botched a meal before. I asked Sarah for permission for this, so Mimi, don't look at me with judgmental eyes. Early in our marriage, my wife made a pecan crusted catfish. And it sounds good, doesn't it? Pecan crusted catfish. But I want to describe to you what lies there on my plate under the guise of pecan-crusted catfish, because it looked like something that would kill me. <laughs> we laughed and then probably went to Sonic. <laughs> we did not eat, We I mean, we it was one of those, it was a good moment in our marriage that we just sit there and we just laugh, and so... Everyone has something to be humble about. We've all botched something at one point or another. We've all tried to achieve this goal and maybe we didn't reach it like we wanted to or didn't reach it at all. Some of us are weak in, well, all of us are weak in certain areas, which we have endless reasons to be humble. It's, that's not even getting into the, the fact that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, we're We're broken. We're fallen people. We're affected by a fallen world. We exist in a Genesis 3, post-Genesis 3 situation. So we have every reason to be humble. Some of you may or may not have noticed that on occasion I may or may not sing the wrong words when I sing. I have every reason to be humble in many ways. So anything that places us in a category that's under perfection, anything, that places us in a category that's under perfection or less than perfection automatically gives you and me reason to be humble, okay? So, now if I were to ask, does anyone feel they have a reason to be humble and you raise your hand, I would then point to that being your number one reason for humility because you are a liar. Humility is the evidence of gospel recognition. It's the evidence of gospel recognition. Here's what I mean by that, Christians, who practice humility, do so out of the knowledge or the acknowledgement that Jesus gave to us what he did or what we did not earn at a price he did not owe. It's the full recognition of that. Humility is intrinsically connected to the gospel in that way because it recognizes that the gospel swooped in and rescued me when I didn't even want rescuing, to be quite frank. The gospel says that you were broken, unlovable, undesirable, and utterly wicked. But in love, God poured out his wrath on his son for his glory and for your salvation. I don't know if you were that kid ever in the backyard when you were about to play wiffle ball or football or kickball or something like that. Maybe it was tag. And maybe you were the kid that wasn't as fast as the other kids. Or maybe you were the kid that really couldn't hit a ball or couldn't throw very well. Maybe that was you. So kids like that stand in a line just hoping to be picked and everybody's picked but them, right? Because they don't offer anything to the team. There's nothing they have of value that can really add value to the team. And that's the idea of being the team captain. I get to pick people for my team that are gonna offer the most value to my team. So increase value. But on occasion, and I don't know if you've experienced this. If not, it's been a sad life for you. But on occasion, that kid gets picked and he gets picked over. The kid that's bigger, the kid that's stronger, the kid that's faster, the kid that has more skill. And that kid gets picked not because, not because, and this is probably a rare situation, not because he adds value, but because the team has the capabilities to offer value to him. And they invest in him, and then there's value that comes out of that. And it's not a far stretch from there to say the same thing has happened when it comes to our salvation, to us being in Christ, because we had nothing to offer, no reason for conceit, no reason for selfish ambition, and the Lord sought us in our deadness, regenerated our hearts, bringing us to faith in him, is my belief of what the Bible teaches. I think part of the evidence is in John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So a salvific context. We're talking about salvation here, not natural birth. We're talking salvific context. He says he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What is he saying here? He's saying it's not because you wanted salvation. It's not because you earned salvation or that uh, you, it was owed to you. But out of the sheer grace, providence, and the will of God, when you were the one who offered zero value to that team, he says, I want you and I will give you value. I will make you into something you are not, but it demands an outside agent. There was nothing attractive or desirable about us that would make God want us. Also, there was nothing in us that would desire God, but God still initiated the necessary change within us to make himself knowable. Humility grants us the ability to see others as more significant than ourselves. It grants us, and I use, I chose that term very intentionally. Rather than it gives us, it it grants us. I think of something being granted to you, It's, it's more of a gift. Or I could even say it's Humility gifts us with the ability to see others as more significant than ourselves. Gospel-centered humility is a disposition in which the believer knows his value is rooted in Christ. Considering others is not often that easy. Understanding this might not be super easy, considering others more significant than ourselves. One theologian says the point of this, because he wrestled with this, and, he, and in his wrestling he said, I don't understand how this works because my... He was, he was talking about his sister, and he said, my, my sister, who is great at tennis, much, much better than I am, I can, I can obviously esteem her as having more worth and as more significant, but I'm better in math, is what he said. I'm better in algebra, specifically. He said, how can I esteem her as being better than me when I'm clearly better than her? And this was the point he made from that, which was so helpful to me. He said, the point of esteeming others is not to esteem them for what they are, but what you count them to be. That's what it means to humble yourself in such a way to count others as more significant. It's not by actually what they bring to the table, but it's the worth that you assign to them, which is directly related to the worth that Christ has assigned to them through himself, through the gospel. So what are some of the marks of humility? I'll just read a few. The humble person regularly has opportunity to boast in himself or herself but rarely indulges in such an opportunity. The humble person labors to be near Christ, but weeps at the distance that's between he and the Savior. The humble person will sin less and less, but will grieve more and more because he's a sinner. Tim Chowley said the humble person will complain more about the condition of his heart than the realities of his circumstances. And a humble person is content with obscurity when others crave prominence. That's, that's the marks of humility. Humility is the disposition from which the pursuit of others' interest is born. So finally, listen to what Paul says. He says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others." looking to the interest of others. So a few questions, does your work ethic, does your work conduct, does it prove that you have your colleagues best interest or your company's or your boss's best interest in mind? Zaxby's, does your work Dennis, at Zaxby's prove that you're putting the interest of the company in mind through your work ethic and through your attempt to glorify God in your ethic? What about when your kid wants you to watch a cartwheel they've been working on that looks more like them trying to walk on their hands during a violent earthquake? What about that time? What about that time? I've been there just the other day. Daddy, watch me on the trampoline. I've seen you bounce 17,000 times. And I don't want to. I don't want to feed the dog. I don't want to watch you jump on the trampoline. I don't care that you're flipping over the gymnastic bar. Who can't do that, Marley? You know, I don't care. This is just me being real. Because the last thing I wanna do is anything that is for the other's interest. The first thing I wanna do is appease my own interest. What about witnessing? If we don't share Christ, is it because we place our own interests? Maybe it's laziness, maybe it's fear, whatever above the interest of others, their interest being the need for Christ? Maybe the shoe fits. This text presupposes that we will look out for our own interest. I told you that's not wrong. Where this text presupposes self-interest, it emphasizes looking after the interest of others. Closing it up, this is a call to extreme one anothering, by the way. Local church context here, I do think he means consider others more significant as far as disciples and not yet disciples. I think it means everybody because uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, it's consistent with all of these commands that we're given, right? So we can't just say, well, all I have to do is consider my brothers and sisters in as more significant, but if I find a lost person on the road somewhere, forget that. Forget that. That's not what it's saying. It's saying consider all people. This just happens to be in a local church discussion. But this is a call to extreme one another, and looking out for each other's interest is left open-ended because the apostle his intention was that the body of Christ will look after one another and consider one another in all things. And the reason I say open-ended is because in the in the original text it does not say interest; it says looking after one another. But the implication is looking after one another in every way, in all ways. It's an extreme call to one another. It's saying you are to be so invested in one another's life and yes, in each other's business so that you can properly look after the interest of others. No one in their right mind would say to a dad or a mom who's got a teenage kid or even a college kid saying, well, how are you doing with your finances? How are you doing in this relationship? No one would look at them and judge them. Well, they might, but no one in their right mind would say, oh my goodness, how could you do that? And you probably wouldn't because that's a family. But what if I came to somebody I didn't even know and said, well, how are you doing with your finances? That wouldn't go so well. That's none of your business. What if I come to one of you? How are you doing with your finances? There's a problem if you come to me and you say, that's none of your business. It is my business. It's your business. And we don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear that because we're okay with this idea of body life and one anothering as long as it doesn't cross into my self-interests well, my self-interest is keeping this a secret. (laughs) And so I'm gonna push everybody out far enough to where they can't get here. Yeah, they can see that I've got some issues here, but once they get past this line, that's where the rubber really meets the road. You have no business and no right to put up parameters. You gave up parameters when you became a follower of Jesus, whether you realize it or not. Let me say some things that are strong and maybe hard, and you might not like it, but that's how it is. If you don't want people to know your business, that is arrogant, that is ignorant, and that is sinful. And it displays a gross misunderstanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Now there are busy bodies and there are nosy people, and that's wrong. That's selfish ambition. That is, maybe I want to know some dirt on you so that I don't look so bad, and that's wrong. But to say, you know what, I'm a part of this body Globally, universally, locally, I'm a part of this, but I only want to be so much a part. I only, be, I only want to be accountable to so much. That's error in your thinking, it just is. There's such joy in being a part of a body that is, that is so connected that they really, truly, without selfish ambition, without conceit, without gossip, without slander, but really wants to see the self-interest of others met. The interest of others met, sorry. So this is a call to extreme one anothering and it's a call for ecclesiological uniformity with Christ. What I mean by that, it's a call for the church to imitate Jesus. Christ humbled himself, poured himself out unto death, death on a cross, to save sinners, but not just that, but to also to be the example of what it looks like to humble oneself and exalt another, to lift another up. It was your best interest that Christ would die. It is for your best interest that Christ died. A healthy church doesn't just have unity, but a healthy church esteems one another as more important than themselves. If you want to maintain humility, church, maintain a steady diet of the gospel because the gospel is the quintessential reminder that you are nothing apart from Jesus. John 5. Make daily decisions to choose others and their interest over you and your own. This is what it is to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So my prayer is that we would all be diligent in trying to do that, esteeming one another, knowing each other well, out of love and concern, and to see each other's interests met for the glory of God, for the advancement of the gospel, and for the further expansion of his kingdom. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, my prayer right now is that these things that we've talked through would not land lightly. The Lord would land and then root themselves in our minds. And through that, that our minds might be transformed, that our minds might be renewed, and that we might think rightly on the gospel and how it affects all of these things. Lord, this is not a false humility, but I know that probably of the people in the room, some of these things are aimed at me more so than others. It's just how I feel, and I thank you. I thank you for for humbling me in some of these areas. I ask that you would humble me in other areas that I need it desperately. I ask that you would humble my brothers in here, my sisters in here. I ask that you would give us a vulnerability with one another that is born out of humility as well. Lord, I pray that you would give us just eyes to see the reality of our fallenness and our need for the body of Christ, for this extreme version of one another. Lord, I pray that you would show us that. I want that. I desire that for this church. Austin desires that for this church. Unify me in Austin as we lead. Make us sensitive to the needs represented in our body, this family that you've given us, and let us consider their interest always above our own, and let us consider them more significant than ourselves, and let those that we rub shoulders with that are not in Christ, let us consider them as more significant, all rooted in the gospel and the reality of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.